Hey, let's put our hands together and celebrate baptism again. Life change, yeah. Never gets old. Well, listen, today we are starting a new series called The Disciples' Journey. And uh, I'm excited about this. This, this uh, series is tied to our mission statement here at New Beginnings. And so let me just remind you of that. And if you're new, introduce you to that. But our mission here at New Beginnings is we are people connecting people to Jesus and his ever restoring life where we live, work, and play. And, and the heart of this mission statement is to recognize that uh, God's goal and his aim for the church is not to be just an organization that has a few leaders that, that, that share the gospel and that mobilize the gospel and that, that are introducing people to Jesus, but rather the church of Jesus Christ is made up of disciples who have a calling in their life to become disciple-making disciples. And that's why in our mission statement, we say we are people connecting people to Jesus, not pastors connecting people to Jesus or preachers connecting people to Jesus, but people, everyday disciples who understand what it means to follow Jesus and introduce someone else to him with their life. And, and that's really our heartbeat. If I would summarize New Beginnings, uh, I would summarize it like this. We wanna become uh, a disciple-making factory. We wanna become a church where there are disciples who are living on mission, making disciples uh, of other people and experiencing their God-given call and, and a life of meaning and purpose with their life. And this series, what it's gonna do is it's gonna show us, so if we we're, we're gonna become a disciple-making factory, then what is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? What are the attributes or the postures, uh, a posture that a disciple lives in? And that's what we're gonna be looking at, five attributes of a disciple of Jesus. One of the things you're gonna hear me say as we walk through this series uh, a number of times is this, is that we're, we're not gonna be talking about what disciples do as much as we're gonna talk about who disciples are. Because a lot of times in, in church world, we talk about, well, what do disciples do? And so I need to do this and do this and do this and go to church and all of these things to get our to-do list. But really what Christ is wanting is to transform our hearts so that the things that we're supposed to do as disciples become an extension of who we are. So following Jesus, and hear this, is not about doing, it's about being. It's about being in relationship with him where he transforms you. And so as we look at these attributes, I want us to see them from that perspective. And so the aim of what Jesus is wanting to do in this house, and I believe in every church house, is this, is to, is to raise up disciple-making disciples, disciples who are being transformed by the ever-restoring life of Jesus, who then introduce others to Jesus so that they too can be transformed by his ever-restoring uh, life. And let me illustrate it like this. College football season is here, all right? So in a couple of weeks, we're gonna be having a kickoff to college football. And what's amazing, this time of the year, uh, there's a lot of dialogue that's happening uh, on, on different networks, televisions, and even coffee shops and work, workplaces all over the community is, is the question is, who's gonna win the national championship? Who's gonna win the national championship this year? And a better way of asking that question is, who's gonna play Alabama in the national championship this way? Isn't that a better way of asking that question? So here's what I would say. So Alabama is, is in Texas, it's, it's a hated, hated university. Honestly, nationwide, other than in Alabama, uh, it's a hated university, but, but here's why. I think it's because of the success that Nick Saban has had. Now here's the thing, I'm not a Nick Saban fan. I'm a Razorback, you know, and so I'm in the SEC right here. This girl is godly, you're my new favorite college student, I want you to know, all right? So well, I, I love uh, the SEC football, and so if you love SEC football, typically unless you're, you know, roll tide, you hate Alabama, but here's what I've done. I've grown to respect Nick Saban, and here, here's why. 
Um, if you look at how competitive, and, and right now, every single year, we're as competitive in, national, in, 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 the, in the college football uh, arena as we are, has ever been in history of college football. Here's, here's my point. This year, there's a lot of question marks. Who's going to win uh, the national championship? I mean, there's Alabama's in the conversation. You got uh, Clemson in the conversation. Aggies are in the conversation. I knew you were in here. That's all you're going to get from me this entire year, that, that statement right there, all right? Um, uh, Longhorns, are, no, they're not. Um, so, uh, I love you. Don't send me an email, all right? Uh, so here's the point. The reason I think college football has become so competitive, it's because I would, what I would call the Nick Saban effect. If you look at every major program that is really in the conversation uh, to, to have a, a shot at a national championship, most of those universities have a head coach that has either coached, have been coached by Nick Saban, coached with Nick Saban, or coached by or with someone who is coached with Nick Saban. It's like the six degrees of, of Nick Saban. And here's why I think Saban has become so successful. And the reason he's impacted the, the college football landscape is because he has the ability to bring in different coaches who work in his system where they, where they learn from him, they follow his type of approach to the game, and then when they leave, they replicate what they've learned under his leadership. So really, in essence, in the college football world, as much as it pains me to say this, is that you have little Nick Sabans that are out there. You have, you have disciples of Nick Saban or disciples of disciples of Nick Saban and that has made everything because he has an ability to replicate himself into the life of other people. Now here's the point of this. This is really the approach that Jesus has uh, brought to the church. That, that he has redeemed us, called us into a relationship with himself so that as we follow him and we're transformed by him, he would send us out so that we could reproduce in the life of others what he has done in our life as well. So that we would become disciple-making disciples so that the world would be saturated with little Christians, little Jesuses all over the place because we as disciples go make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and now you have this Jesus effect all over culture and that's the way that Jesus turned the world on its head 2,000 years ago and it's the same mode of operation today. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we introduce this whole idea of becoming disciples who make disciples is I want us to go to Matthew chapter four. If you brought your Bible, go there. Matthew chapter four, what we're gonna discover is the very beginning of the disciple-making journey that, that Jesus ushered in when he came. So what you're gonna see in Matthew chapter four is the calling of the very first disciples. So if we ever wanna know what's the essence of Christianity, what's the essence of discipleship, what's, what is it that Jesus is fundamentally after? Well, the way we discover that is to go back to the beginning, go back to the origin, and what is it that Jesus said to the very first disciples that set the bar for every disciple that would come behind him? And, and what happens over time in, in anything that has a strong beginning is that over time we begin to lose sight of what the original intention was. We gotta get back to the beginning of what Jesus intended if we're gonna understand what it looks like for us today to be disciple-making uh, disciples. So Matthew chapter four is where we're gonna be. If you're there, say the Bible is true. Let's jump in. Matthew four, verse 18. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. 
right here in these verses, this is the very first call for someone to become a disciple of Jesus in church history. Right here, it's the very beginning. And here's what we discover. Christianity or discipleship or following Jesus really comes down to two fundamental words. Two words really set the stage for us of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And it's the words, follow me. Follow me. Understanding these two words, listen, it not only helps us understand how Jesus transforms us, but it also helps us understand how Jesus transforms the world through us. And this is what we're gonna dive into this morning. So I'm gonna give you four truths about a life as a disciple, this invitation to follow Jesus that we discover right here in these three verses. Here's number one. Write this down if you're taking notes. Here's the first thing I want you to see about this call to follow Jesus. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him in order to become like him. That, this, this very, uh, the very beginning, the, the first truth that I want you to see, Jesus invites us into a relationship with him for the purpose of becoming like him. Look what it says here in verse 19 again. Two words sum up the entire invitation. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus, from the very beginning, wants us to understand that what he's inviting us into is a relationship. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, come and believe some stuff. He doesn't say, hey, hey, come and pray a prayer or, or come and, 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 and say an affirmation to my death and resurrection. Jesus says, no, 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 come follow me. This is an invitation into relationship. You see, so many of us, we, we confuse this in, in American Christianity. In American Christianity, Christianity is really summarized by this idea of have you prayed a prayer? Do you go to church? Do, do you have a belief about the, the person and the nature of Jesus? And all of those things are important and essential, but the invitation is not to just believe stuff about Jesus, but to enter into a relationship with Jesus. You see, there's a lot of people that believe a lot of stuff about Jesus, and the things that they believe about Jesus are absolutely true, but they don't know him. What Jesus wants is a relationship. Follow me. Now, we understand this question if we look at it from the perspective of other human relationships. So let me just use this as an illustration. So let's say you've got a couple that's dating and it's getting pretty serious. And now they're kicking uh, around the idea of, of getting married. And so they're, they're dating, they're talking about this. Finally, man, he finally gets up the nerve, which means he saved enough money to buy the ring. And he went and talked to her daddy because that's what good men do. Girls, make sure you know that, all right? They talked to the daddy, so daddy gave it permission, so what did he do? He sets up this little romantic moment, and, and there's a moment, he pulls the ring out, he gets on one knee, and he pops the big question. Will you, what's the rest of it? Marry me. Now, that's a sweet moment, all right, and, and hopefully he's done his homework because he knows the answer beforehand. If he's surprising her with this and they've never talked about it, it may go bad for him. But if he's done his homework, he marry me. Will you marry me? Now, she's gotta make a decision, prayerfully, yes. Now, her response to that question could be one of two responses. Her understanding, rather, of that question can be one of two understandings. She could hear those words, will you marry me? And she could uh, translate that and understand that as he is inviting me into a covenant relationship with him that will be forever, that until death do his part. He wants to spend the rest of his life with me. Or she could understand that question, will you marry me, as he wants to have a wedding ceremony. 
How silly is that? Now just think about that for a moment. If her response to that moment is, will you marry me? Yes, let's have a wedding. She's missed the point, right? Yes, let's get the dress, let's get the church, let's get the preacher, and let's have this event. He would probably say, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you to have a wedding with me. I'm asking you to spend the rest of your life with me. You see, she would understand by the nature of the question that the invitation wasn't to just an event where they go through a ceremony and then she goes and lives her life and he goes and lives his life and they'll call each other if they need each other. No, she understands the question is, will you forsake all others, enter into a covenant relationship with me and spend the rest of your life with me? Now, that's Jesus's invitation. When Jesus says to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, follow me, he is not saying, will you pray a prayer or will you go to church or will you get baptized or will you do this thing and then afterwards you go do your thing, I'll go do my thing, I'll be there if you need me. We can just go our two separate ways. Let's have a ceremony. No, we understand that Jesus' invitation was not to an event but rather to a life. Will you forsake everything else you've been living for And will you devote your life to me for the rest of your life and for eternity? In the original language, this invitation, follow me, is in the present imperative. Present imperative means a command. So Jesus is commanding, hey, follow me. Follow me. But it's present in that it's follow me and keep on following me and never stop following me. You see, we've treated our salvation and our relationship with Jesus like some event that took place in our life. What Jesus is inviting us into is a relationship that transforms our life. And this is what we've got to understand if we're going to begin this journey of being a follower of Jesus. It's to enter into a relationship with him. Now, listen, the heartbeat of this relationship is to become like him. And, and I'll, I'll show you this. We've got to look at a little bit of the culture. So Jesus, what I love about the story of Jesus is that Jesus steps into a real-time culture. So he steps into the Jewish culture. And in the Jewish culture, Jesus is, is, does something, and I love this, that he, he really engrafts himself into the culture so that when you understand the culture and you understand the, the nature of Jesus' relationship with his disciples, you begin to understand his call on our life today when we're thousands of years removed from that culture. Let me, let me explain it to you like this. So when Jesus says, follow me, he is using what is known as rabbinic speech. So what is rabbinic speech? Well, a rabbi in Jesus' day was the, were the teachers who would make disciples. So So every young disciple, every young Jewish boy aspired one day to become a disciple of a rabbi with the hopes that they too would become a rabbi as well. And so this is where they would learn about the the law. They would learn about what it means to be the people of God. They would learn what it looks like to walk and commune and have fellowship with God. And so the entire education system for uh, the Jewish life was built around this relationship with their God. And so as they began the early days of like elementary, they would learn uh, parts of the, of, of the scriptures and they would learn the stories and the history of their people. They would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the, the, the kind of the, the next level of education, once you're done with that, the boys would continue in the education process. And at this state, here's what they would do. They would begin to memorize the majority, if not all of the Old Testament. And then if you did all of that, and you were the best and the brightest, you could enter into the last and the highest level of education, which is you were gonna become a disciple. 
The word disciple is, is, is the Hebrew word uh, Talmud. You wanted to become a Talmudim, which means that you were a student. You were a disciple of a rabbi. And, and so here's the, in essence, what you did. You left everything to follow that rabbi. You would leave mom and dad and brother and sister and career or whatever ambitions you might've had. If you were gonna follow a rabbi, your entire life now was engulfed into the life of your rabbi. Where he ate, you would ate. What he ate, you would ate. How he ate, you would ate. Where he walked, how he walked. When he walked, you would try to walk like him. You would try to mimic how he spoke. You would engulf yourself into the life of your rabbi as a disciple because the aim of every disciple in this culture was not to just know what the rabbi knew. It was to become like the rabbi is. You immerse yourself so deep into the life of the rabbi as you followed him, that you became like him. That was the aim. And so here Jesus is, comes on the scene, and he initiates his ministry, and he uses rabbinic uh, language or speech by saying, follow me, and the disciples would have understood. He is inviting us to be his disciple. We are gonna become the Talmudim of Jesus, and here's what Jesus is implying. I want you to follow me and walk with me and spend the rest of your life with me. I want you to learn what, what I know. I want you to walk like I walk. I want you to love like I love. I want you to immerse yourself so much in me and me in you so that you emulate me with your life. From the very beginning, this invitation to follow Jesus was not just about knowing what Jesus knew, it was about becoming like Jesus in every way. That's the aim. There was an idiom used uh, for uh, um, disciples who followed the rabbi really well. So if they were a, an, an, a great student and they followed so closely and began to mimic their, their rabbi and began to look like the one that they were being discipled by, there was a phrase and the phrase was this. People would compliment this disciple and say, you are covered in the dust of your rabbi. This phrase meant you follow him so closely that as he walks, the dust that he stirs is all over you. That was a way for them to say, you look just like your rabbi. Do you realize today that the call of Jesus for every disciple that he has said, come follow me, his aim is for you to enter into a relationship in order for you to become like him. He wants us to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. To know him and to become like him in every single way. This is why Jesus says what he says in Luke chapter six, verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher. A disciple is not above his rabbi. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher, like his rabbi. So eyes right here just for a second. See, what's the end game for Jesus in my life? Here's the end game. For you to walk with him and become like him. For you to live like he lived, love like he loved and become like him in every area of your life. That's the aim. Now, what does this result in? Well, here's number two. So Jesus, first of all, invites us into a relationship with him to become like him. Listen to this. And then Jesus equips us to become disciples who make disciples. So when we become like him, there's a goal, and that is that goal is to reproduce. Look what he says in verse 19. From the very beginning, the very first invitation to enter into a relationship with Jesus, he says, follow me, become my disciple so that you can become like me, and here's what I'm gonna do. I will make you fishers of men. 
So from the very first call of Jesus to any disciple, he says, I want you to become like me so you can go and live on the mission that I live on. So you can go fish for men. Now this is beautiful, I think, because Jesus, uh, here he is, he's walking on the Sea of Galilee in the shore. Now we know from the text, um, what's, the, what's the occupation of Peter and, and Andrew and James and John? What, what, is, what do they do for a living? They're fishermen, right? So they're out in their boats and they're fishing and they're coming in and Jesus is walking by the shore. They're fishing for fish. But what is Jesus doing as he's walking on the seashore? Jesus is fishing for men. They're fishing for fish. Jesus is fishing for men. And then he calls out to them and here is the invitation. Hey boys, I want you to leave everything behind. Come follow me. Enter into this relationship. And when it's all said and done, you're not gonna fish for fish anymore. You're gonna fish for men just like me. You're gonna become like me. I'm fishing for men. You're gonna fish for men the rest of your life. So hear me say this. And those of you who are new, I say this a lot in, in preaching. Eyes right here for a second. That's just because when I, I have something really important to say, eyes right here for a moment. Every believer is called. Every believer is called. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are called to fish for men. You were called to be a disciple-making disciple. And what I love about this is that this call that every believer has isn't just a call that Jesus makes, it's a cause that Jesus produces. Now notice back, go back to verse 19 again. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So it's not just a call that we receive, it's a cause that Jesus creates in our life. He, he makes us into something we were not before. I will do this. I'll make you into what you were not before. You used to just fish for fish. When I'm done with you, you're gonna fish for men. He's giving them to a vision of, of a greater purpose. He's casting vision of what it looks like to live a life of purpose and meaning. He's saying to them, you, you don't wanna live your days catching fish and selling fish and not that there's anything wrong with being a fisherman by trade, but his point is, is that if you're just a fish, then you're just gonna catch fish, you're gonna live, you're gonna make money, you're gonna provide for your family and when you go to the grave, it's all over, no meaning, no purpose. And Jesus is saying, but I'm inviting you into something even greater. I want you to leverage your life to help redeem souls so that men and women far from him might be brought into relationship with him. This is the heartbeat of it. David Platt says this. He says, every disciple exists to make disciples of Jesus. Here and among every people group on the planet, there are no spectators. We are all born to reproduce. Every single one of us in this room. You know what that means for you? You know, I love the fact that Jesus says, Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Why does he use fishers of men as this metaphor? Because they were fishers of fish, right? So what is Jesus' invitation to you? If you're in the medical field and you're a doctor or you're a nurse, here's what Jesus is saying to you. Hey, hey, come and follow me. And, and while you're bandaging wounds and you're helping people find physical healing, while you're doing that, you're going to help bind spiritual wounds and you're gonna help people find healing for the soul that's found in Christ and Christ alone. If you're a teacher, as you're educating English or math or whatever your subject is, is that as you're teaching those subjects while you're doing this, you're also teaching and modeling what the gospel is so that those students not just, they don't just walk away from your classroom knowing English or whatever subject it is, but they know Jesus because of you. 
He's saying, listen, if you're a businessman or a businesswoman, hey, your calling isn't just to go and make deals, it's to make disciples while you're making the deals. If you're a law enforcement officer, while you're enforcing the law and you're upholding justice and you're protecting the community, you have a greater reason to get up in the morning. It is not just to uphold the law, it is to uphold the truth that the gospel of Jesus wants to permeate every single, penetrate every single heart and no matter what life choices they're making. If you're a coach in the room, your calling is not just to go get your team to win games, it is to help your team in the process of, of winning games, you can win people for Christ and reach people who are far from him. I want you to feel the weight of this. Whatever occupation you have, here's the invitation. Go do that as you follow Jesus for the purpose of making more disciples for his glory. This is the call and the heartbeat for every believer. But listen to me. There are some of you who are like, on the first one, you were going, oh man, I'm with him. That's awesome, yeah, like become like Jesus. I wanna become like Jesus. Hey, your calling is just go fish for men and make disciples and you gotta leverage your life for that. You're like, oh, hold, pump the brakes here. Like, I don't know that I want that kind of life. And let me just say this very clearly or let David Platt say it very clearly. He goes on to talk about this verse and here's what he says. He says, do you desire to reproduce? I mean, deep down inside, do you long to see people come to Christ through your life? If the answer of that question is not an unhesitating, unapologetic yes, then I encourage you to search your heart. Is Christ in you? Do you believe his word, his word that claims that Christ alone is able to save sinners, that God alone is worthy of worship, and that all who do not receive God's grace in Christ will spend eternity in hell? If these things are not a reality in your life, then no matter what decision you made however many years ago, and no matter what church you attended last week, you may not actually be a disciple or a Christian. For these features are the fruit of followers of Christ. If you don't desire to reproduce and if you don't long to see people come to Christ uh, through your life, then I encourage you in the words of 2 Corinthians 3, 5, to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Is Christ in you? This is the aim. This is the call. And if there's a person that says, no, 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 I'm, I'm in a following Jesus. I have no desire to become a disciple making disciple. I have no desire to reproduce Christ into the life of others. Then here's what I would say. You might not be following Christ at all. And in Jesus's culture, this would have been the aim. And every uh, Talmudim disciple who was following a rabbi, here was the goal of that rabbi. I want them to follow me so closely that they emulate me and to full maturity, and then when they emulate me to full maturity, I'm gonna release them to go be a rabbi, a, 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 a person who is a disciple now that's making disciples. That would have been the goal. After so many years, a rabbi would have said, I'm gonna send you now, go make more disciples. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Matthew chapter four, Jesus is by the sea of Galilee and he tells Peter and Andrew, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Fast forward now, Matthew 28, they're standing on the side of a mountain. Peter and Andrew are there. What does Jesus say to all of the disciples? Go now and make disciples of all nations. What is the great commission? I believe it was the graduation ceremony where Jesus says, I, what I attempted to produce in your life, I have done. Now go and do it in the life of others. That's the aim of every disciple of Jesus is to make disciples. Here's number three. Jesus initiates us according to his grace, not our goodness. Now, don't, don't go to sleep on this one. Jesus initiates us according to his grace, 
not our goodness. I want you to go back to this verse here, verse 18. He says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen, verse 19. And he said to them, follow me. Now, why is that so relevant? Let me go back in time for a minute. Culturally, let me give you the context. We talked about this idea of a, of a, of a, of a young man wanting to become a disciple of a rabbi. Nod your head if you say, if you're with me. All right, so when this, this, this young person would have graduated from the second level of school and wanted to become a Talmud, they want to become a disciple. Here's what they would do in Jewish culture. They would find a rabbi that they've studied and they would approach that rabbi and here's what they would say. I want to become your disciple. Can I follow you? I really believe that I could be a good student. I can be a good disciple. I think I have what it takes. I've studied and I've read you. Can I be your disciple? Can I follow you? Here's what that rabbi would do. They would ask them a series of questions. They would test them. And at the end of this, they would evaluate, does this young man have what it takes to become a disciple of mine? If the answer is yes, he would say, yes, come and follow me. I think you can be my disciple. I think you have what it takes. If he didn't, he would say, you don't have what it takes to be my disciple. And for every young man who was rejected by the rabbi that they wanted to follow or rabbis that they wanted to follow because they weren't good enough, here's what they would do. They would go back to the family business and they would go and take the occupation of their father and they would just try to love God from where they were, realizing we weren't good enough to follow a rabbi. Now think about that context and think about the passage. Where are Peter and Andrew and James and John when Jesus approaches them? They're fishing with their father. What does that tell you about these young men? They weren't good enough. Then culturally speaking, they should have gone to the next level of education. But could it be that Peter and Andrew went to some rabbis and the rabbi says, you don't have what it takes. So what do they do naturally? As any young men would do, let's go back and just do the occupation of our father because we're not good enough. We don't have what it takes. And I love this because now Jesus sees these men going about their father's work and he approaches them and what does he say? Hey, you, come follow me. What is Jesus doing? He's taking the norm of the day and he's turning it on its head. No rabbi would have ever asked a disciple, will you follow me? It was always the disciple's job to go and ask the rabbi if I can follow you. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus is showing us my disciples will not follow me and become what I am and like I am because their goodness and because their ability and because their aptitude or because of their education. They will become like me because of my grace and my grace alone. It will be my goodness, not their goodness. And maybe Peter and Andrew at this moment in their life, they've given up on the hope and dream of ever becoming a disciple. Then all of a sudden, this rabbi who is the miracle worker, the one that people are saying, he could be the son of God. All of a sudden, he comes on and says, hey, Peter, Andrew, hey, come follow me. He calls them by grace alone, not their ability. So for those of you in the room who've heard me preach the last 30 minutes and said, I don't know that I've got what it takes. 
I don't know that, that I could be a, like Jesus, much less a disciple-making disciple. Here's the great news for you. You are in the best position possible because Jesus has a history of taking people who don't measure up and who feel like they don't have what it takes because here's what he does. He says, you're not enough and you don't have what it takes, but I'm all that you need. You follow me and I will make you what you're not. Hear me say this. That's the posture of the relationship. This is why when Jesus enters, enters into his ministry, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, what does it say? Blessed is the poor in spirit. Why? Blessed are those who are bankrupt spiritually, who they have nothing to bring to the table, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So for those of you who've got a shady past, you don't know much scripture, some of the comprehension of things, you're just like, I just don't know if I get it. Or some of you who, you're, you're very intelligent and very smart, but you just, some, something spiritually is like, man, I just don't know that I can really become that courageous and bold. Here's the great news for you. He's not inviting you into this journey because you have it all together. He's inviting you into this journey because he's more than enough. And he can do the impossible in your life. How good is that? Anybody thankful for that this morning? This grace and mercy, this goodness in our life. And I know there are some of you, you think you're the exception, and I just want you to hear this statement. No one is so far gone that they are in the reach of his grace. And no one in this room is so good that they're not in need of his grace. And here's what that says to you. Whether you think you're straight A religious, man, you knock it out of the park, or whether your life is busted and broken, both groups of people need his grace just as much as the other. Which means it's a level playing field at the foot of the cross. And for those of you who need to hear that, you need to let the spirit of God apply that to your heart. So some of you, maybe it's time that God humbles you for others of you, it's time that God speaks in and you've been too hard on yourself and you're walking in shame and guilt and he frees you from that today. Here's number four. Here's number four, and this is the tough one. Jesus requires us to surrender everything and follow him. Jesus requires for us to surrender everything and follow him. Now, I want you to track with these points here. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him to become like him. Jesus' work. Jesus equips us to become disciples who make disciples. Jesus' work. Jesus initiates this by his grace, not our goodness. Jesus' work. So three out of the four, Jesus does all the work. The, the last part, we do the work. What do we do? We respond to it. That's what we do. I love this. Jeff Manning made a statement. He's our formations minister. I was walking through this points with him. He says, I love this. He says, because that's the Christian life. Jesus does three-fourths of the work, and our fourth-fourth is just to participate with his work. But we've got to understand there is an expectation. There is a requirement that you and I have for Jesus to do this work and for us to become disciples who, who look like Jesus and who go make disciples for Jesus. It requires that we surrender everything to follow him. Listen to what the disciples do in Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. And they said to them, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and they followed him immediately, urgently, without hesitation. They heard the invitations. We're all in, Jesus. And they leave everything to follow him. 
And this posture that they assume in this moment, this relinquishing of control of their life, here's what that's saying to you and I. The first disciples set the precedence for us. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means that you were living for these things. And I no longer live for those things anymore. I follow Jesus. This is why Jesus, we're gonna preach it next week in, in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, the verse before this section. Jesus' very first message, he says, repent. That's in essence what the disciples are doing in this moment. When they leave their nets and their boats, they're repenting. We're no longer gonna live for these things. We're gonna live for him the rest of our life. And guess what? They did. The rest of their life, ups and downs, highs and lows, bumps and bruises, good times, bad times. We get it all in the gospels. But they followed Jesus and they surrendered everything. So listen, I want you to rest in the fact that this is, this is a progressive work. So if you read the story of Peter and Andrew and the rest of the disciples, there was some, there's some working out of this that they had to do. They left their boats and their nets, but then these guys, they had to eventually leave their prejudices and their bigotry and their pride and their selfishness and their fear. So over the, the process of following Jesus, they surrendered everything, but that everything was working itself out. So it is both progressive, but it is also both actual. It will happen if you're truly following Jesus. It will happen if you're truly following Jesus. I love what one commentary says about this. It says, the early disciples left everything behind that was familiar and natural to them. They exchanged comfort for uncertainty. They didn't know where they were, would be going. They only knew who they would be with. As followers of Christ, we must respond this same way today. We may not always know all the details about where Christ is leading us, but we do know who we're following. That's the invitation. And by the way, there is no bait and switch here. Like there's no like, we didn't sign up for this Jesus. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter nine, just so you can see that Jesus' call is serious, that relinquishing everything to follow him is his expectation. Look what it says here. If anyone, this is Jesus speaking, would come after me, this is the, the implication, is that become my disciple to follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and daily follow me. So this is a dying to self every single day to pursue him. And here's why. For whoever would save their life will lose it. But who loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit himself? Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his father and the holy angels. You know what Jesus is saying here? If you wanna follow me, you've gotta surrender everything and follow me. And for those of you who wanna save your life, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna follow like that. He goes, okay, you save your life, but you're gonna lose your life. But if you'll lose your life for me, you'll find your life. And then he says, hey, what, what is the point if you gain everything you've ever wanted in life, at the end of the day, you lose yourself for eternity? And then he sums it up by saying, listen, if you're ashamed of me and denying yourself and pursuing me with this reckless abandon, then I'm gonna be ashamed to confess you before my Father who is in heaven. This is an in or an out type of invitation. It's not like I'm halfway. I'm in or I'm not in. Luke chapter 
9, later on, Jesus says this, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the fox have holes and the birds have, of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. That sounds harsh, right? I can't even go to my dad's funeral. And here's the point Jesus is making. This, this young man is making an excuse. Some commentaries even say the, 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 the young man's dad probably isn't even deceased at this moment. But he's trying to, to buy a little bit of time. I'll follow you, but let me get this part of my life over with and then I'll surrender it to you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're either in or you're out. He goes on to say this. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord he says, but let me first say farewell to, my, to those at my home. And Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't follow Jesus like this where you're missing what you left. If this isn't enough, you fast forward to Luke chapter 14. Jesus does this. He says this. He goes, hey, following me is costly. And he sets it up by saying this. He says, you better count the cost before you say yes to me. And he uses this illustration. He says, suppose a man wants to build a house and rather than putting the budget together to see if he can afford the house, he just starts construction on the house. Halfway through building it, he realizes he doesn't have enough currency to finish the house. He said, that man's gonna look like a fool because he should have counted the cost first. And he says, what about a king that wants to go fight against one of the opposing armies and, and go to battle? He said, before he goes to war and step on the battlefield, he better do an evaluation. Is my army big enough, strong enough, and ready to face the enemy? If not, he said, what he needs to do, if he evaluates, he might just need to sign a peace treaty before he goes and gets his hindquarters handed to him. It's my translation. And then Jesus ends it with this. Here's the application. 1433, so therefore... Anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Anyone who will not, will not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And listen, those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. And I want you to think about this. Just, just picture in your mind for a moment. This is what Peter experienced just picture the life of Peter. Just go back in, in your mind, if you would, and just think about Jesus on the Sea of Galilee that day. He's walking along, and he sees Peter, and he sees Andrew, and James, and John, and he calls to them by his grace, and he says, hey, I want you to take a journey with me, to enter into a relationship, and at the end of this journey, you're gonna look like me, and then you're gonna go, and you're gonna make disciples. You're gonna change the world, Peter. You're gonna change the world, Andrew. You're gonna help people far from God meet God and enter to relationship with him. And I love the story. Immediately, they saw what Jesus offered and they gladly left everything and they begin this journey of following Jesus. They begin to pursue Jesus and there was ups and downs. There were moments in Peter's life that he wishes he could get a do-over. Things that he said, he wishes he could unsay. Moments of his life where he ran in fear, where he wishes he would have stood with courage, but he didn't. But all the while, he continued moving forward. And through all of those three years of ministry with Jesus, through the ups and the downs, it leads to this moment in Acts chapter one, where Peter filled with the Holy Spirit after three years with Jesus, he stands up and he preaches a message and the world has never been the same again because the church of Jesus Christ was born. And this young man, fishing with his father, didn't realize that God had such a great plan for his life. Never imagined that three years later, filled with the 
power of the resurrection of Jesus that he would proclaim a message that would ignite a fire that's still burning today. And not only that, Peter, even through moments of being challenged and disobedient, would plant more churches and he would see the gospel flourish and he would encourage believers. And Peter, years, decades later, walking with Jesus, following Jesus, remembering the day when this young 17-year-old kid first heard the words, follow me. And for decades and decades, Peter followed Jesus through suffering, through rejection, through persecution, through imprisonment. And then Peter, under the rule of the tyranny of Nero, penned the letter of First and Second Peter where he reminds the church in the middle of suffering that following Jesus is costly. But I want you to love your persecutor and I want you to pray for them because your treasure, what you have in Christ is worth everything you'll lose. And shortly after pinning those letters under the tyranny of Nero, Church history, specifically Fox's Book of Martyrs, records this. That Peter was imprisoned for his faith. And he knew that death was possible. In fact, the history tells us that the church came to him and said, Peter, you gotta leave Rome. He's after you. Nero's gonna put you to death. And one of the stories in Fox's Book of Martyrs says that and Peter was, was gonna be leaving the city, was gonna try to escape the city, and then something happened. History tells us that Peter had a vision. And the vision was that of Jesus. And it tells us that he saw Jesus and as he was leaving the city, Jesus was walking into the city toward the Colosseum. And Jesus asked the question, Jesus, or Peter asked the question, Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus looked at him with love and said, I'm going to be crucified again. And Peter understood. And the story goes that Peter then left, left, turned back, and he went. And this young man that stood at the Sea of Galilee that gladly left his boat and his father and his family business was crucified upside down. Why upside down? Because he did not count himself worthy to die like his rabbi his Lord. I don't know about you. I want that kind of pursuit of Jesus. A pursuit of him that says, I remember 16 years old, Jesus called my name and he says, follow me. And I didn't understand where that was gonna take me. But I'm telling you now, somebody 27 years removed from that, I look back and I'm going, man, I can't believe he called me. And listen, and I, my ambition, and I hope it's your ambition, for the rest of my life, as long as Jesus leaves me on planet earth, I wanna follow him ups and downs, good and bad, hard and easy, I'm in. Because here's the reality, we're all gonna die at some point. That's good news, right? You're welcome. But how are we gonna die? That's a better question. And what's gonna be the story of our life when we're gone? That's an even better question. 
Could it be said of us that they left their whatever and they followed Jesus and they never looked back and they exhausted their life reproducing Jesus in the life of other people? Instead of Peter, will it be said of us? So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give a very direct invitation this morning, very direct. There are some of you in this room right now, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. This morning, the Holy Spirit might have revealed this to you, that you might have had some religion, but you've never began the journey of following Jesus, of entering into that relationship where you become like him. And I want you to know that Jesus died and resurrected and everything that was good about Peter was only possible because Jesus lived the life Peter couldn't live and he died in his place and he rose again. That's what changed Peter's life and that's what changes our life. So if you've never truly become a follower of Jesus, receiving Christ and, and choosing to say yes to his invitation, to live in relationship with him, then today is the day for you. And here's why I say a bold invitation. We're gonna do this with every head up and every eye open. There are some of you in this room today and your heart is beating out of your chest because you know I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I so desperately wanna be. And I, some of you have been playing the game far too long. And for some of you, the Lord has said to you, the game ends today, you're gonna become my disciple. Eight o'clock service. And people respond. So here's where we're gonna do it. If today you say, I don't know that I know Jesus, but I know he's calling me to know him. I want to become a disciple of Jesus. I'm gonna be unashamed. I wanna follow him like Peter, forsaking everything to trust him as my Lord and Savior and live for him the rest of my life. If you've never done that, and today is the day, I'm asking you right now where you are, stand to your feet. You're saying, Pastor, you're talking to me. And just stand to your feet. Just stand your feet. Praise God. We can celebrate that. Keep standing. Who else? Praise God. So proud of you. Takes a lot of courage. Praise Jesus over here. We celebrate that. Anybody else? Is anyone else you can stand? I'm just gonna to talk to those that are, stand, that are standing right here. Look, I just want you to know it takes a lot of courage to do what you just did. And in just a moment, we're gonna dismiss service. And as soon as we're done, one of our encouragers just wanna have a conversation with you, just to pray with you and help you in this new journey. We don't want you to stand alone in this. But we want you to know this is beginning a journey and I'm so proud of you. And what you did today is the beginning of a journey that will change you forever. And we celebrate that with you. Let's give it up one more time. You can be seated. That takes courage. Now, for the rest of us in this room, I'm gonna assume that if you didn't stand, you're either a believer or you still have questions. If you still have questions, when we're dismissed, come right over here and I will meet you to answer questions or have one of our staff members meet with you to answer questions. If you still have, I wanna become a follower of Jesus, but I'm not certain I've got some questions and I wanna to talk to you about that. But for the rest of you in this room this morning, like if you're a follower of Jesus, here's the question. What we talked about this morning, does that describe your life? 
If not, repent and let Jesus do a fresh work in you and stay with us through this series because you're gonna learn what God's calling is for your life to make disciples where you live, work, and play. Amen? Father, I love you and I surrender this moment to you and I ask that you empower every person in this room who belong to you to go and live this kind of a life. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.